Hi, it's Professor Leslie Braun here. Next week, I'm hosting a roundtable FX Medicine podcast with all of our FX Medicine hosts on all things immunity. We'll cover some new research I'm about to release, naturopathic principles, diet and lifestyle, nutrients, herbs, sleep, movement, gut health, and much more. Four perspectives, one podcast. The episode will drop next Tuesday wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't miss it. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse, and joining us on the line today is Professor Sandra Serkey. She's a general physician, geriatrician, consultant neurologist, multi-award-winning clinical researcher, and principal investigator of the Women's Healthy Aging Project, the longest ongoing study of women's health ever done in Australia. Thanks for being with us today, Professor Serkey. My pleasure. Firstly, thank you so much for writing this book, The Secrets of Women's Healthy Aging. What I loved about this read is how broad the concepts were and how straightforward and inspiring they are and how by reading it, I I felt particularly a significant call to action uh, as a woman in their middle years of life. So in a healthcare system that's so fragmented, how did you become so interested in the complexities of the whole? (laughs) Well, look, I think I always wanted to be a generalist. So, you know, in medicine, we're getting increasingly super, super subspecialized. And mm. I absolutely did that. You know, I uh, became a neurologist. I then did a subspecialization in epilepsy. And I then sub, sub specialized in the neurocognitive <laughs> side effects of wow. epilepsy. But through that journey, I got really interested in cognitive side effects of medications. And so that kind of led me to broaden out and also to really look at our aging because I really feel we haven't focused on aging research or in health. It's mainly focused around diseases. And once um, you get to over 50, in Australia, 80% of people don't have one disease. (laughs) You know, they're either disease-free or they have several diseases. So a disease focus can be a bit confusing for them because, um, Mm. you know, they have to look up several websites to see what to do. And sometimes those websites conflict with each other. Absolutely. And so you started the Women's Healthy Aging Project, which really, you know, what is what this book is all about. And it started, what, 30 years ago and yes, is still going to go on. I'm not that for... old. I'm not that old. <laughs> I actually am really, really old, but I like to say I'm not that old. The yeah, but do you know how to started, age well? <laughs> the study was started in the late 80s by Professor Dennis Dean, Professor Henry Berger and Professor John Hopper. Right. And uh, Professor Berger, Professor Dennis Dean uh, are now emeritus professors. And Professor John Hopper still to this day is working at the University of Melbourne. Um, wow. And um, I took over the study in um, after the noughties. So Fantastic. it was started initially back in the 80s and the first people came in in the early 90s. And is this the first study of its kind across the world or is there others that have, have helped to inform? Oh, I mean, there's so many amazing studies across the world and even locally. Our study is the longest running study of women's health in Australia. Mm, And something that makes it really unique internationally 
is it's not only the longest running, but we have detailed measures. So there are studies that have been going almost as long as ours, um, which do questionnaires or online surveys um, and sometimes bring a, a sub-cohort of people in for measures. But our study has been incredibly detailed. Um, these over 400 women have spent four to six hours at the University of Melbourne going through all sorts of tests and blood tests wow. and scans, bone scans, brain scans. Um, and so that level of detail actually becomes really important when you're trying to work out um, the overlaps and intersections of different diseases as we get older. That's brilliant. So I wanted to focus our conversation today on the role of hormone replacement therapy for women. And not not to take that away from the holistic approach, but more to kind of nut it down because I know that there is so much confusion about hormone replacement therapy. At the beginning of my career when I was in medical school, it was the go-to panacea. It was like that's what you should prescribe pretty much all women going through menopause, even those not suffering symptoms at that particular time. But that all changed with the Women's Health Initiative study that came out in 2002. Tell us about the impact of that study on the prescribing habits of GPs and, and medicine and also oh, well, the community attitudes. Globally across the world, they showed that I like to say overnight, almost overnight, 80% of women stopped taking their hormone therapy. Wow. So it that's was dramatic. a huge dramatic impact. Mm. Um, and so that's what happened around that time. And, you know, there's a reason you were saying it was a panacea. And look, you know, it is difficult in medicine when we get excited about something. <laughs> and so yes. often when we don't understand it well, we perhaps, you know, take it up too quickly. Um, but what happened was everyone had observed for a very long time and tested in animals and tested in primates that when estrogen left a woman's system around menopause, which is a mean age of 50, all of a sudden, women who were protected against heart disease, protected against bone disease, are having much less pathology than men, they were much mm. healthier, all of a sudden, when estrogen had left their system, they were getting the same rates of disease as men and actually higher rates. Wow. So that was the reason it was felt, you know, to maintain those hormones, which were protecting women, would be the right thing to do. Mm. However, the Women's Health Initiative didn't actually answer that question. It didn't mm. answer the question of whether maintaining hormones would be beneficial. What the study did was it recruited almost 50,000 people. So, you know, enormous number of people, really strong study. However, the mean age of those people was 63. Mm. So, again, you know, menopause happens at 50. So the mean age of these women, they were over a decade from their menopause. So they'd already had estrogen drop to levels that are undetectable by usual assays. And um, then in joining this study, they were randomised to either get a placebo tablet or to receive combined hormone therapy, which was reintroducing hormones mm. 10 years after they had, you know, reduced down to, to negligible levels. So it was more a test of the reintroduction of hormones at me and age 63, and that showed us several things. First of all, that whilst it was true, it was very good for bone health and there were less fractures and less falls in the group of people who were taking the hormone therapy, there were side effects. So there were more clots there was more breast cancer, and um, it didn't help heart disease and it didn't help dementia. So yeah. that was 
the first thing it showed, that reintroducing hormones around mean age 63 did not have the same benefits. It still benefited bones, but it didn't benefit the other organ systems that we were expecting it to benefit. But the second thing it showed was those preparations that were used mm. back in the 90s, which was, um, it's called CEE and it's a conjugated equine estrogen. So in the study, it was conjugated equine estrogen. So that means it's from pregnant uh, mares. mares? Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's got a whole mix of different kinds of estrogens. And also it was the old kind of progesterone that was used. Right. And interestingly, you know, that Women's Health Initiative just published in 2020 and 2021, their long, long, long-term outcomes, which was wonderful to see. And it really showed that people who were taking just estrogen, so without the progesterone, they actually didn't have an increased risk. Of so just an estradiol, not the no, conjugated equine? No, the CEE equine. on its own, because oh, okay. back then yep. we did, they didn't have estradiol. So right. this is the thing, you know, some of the new treatments uh, uh, have been shown to be much better, but they weren't tested um, right. in this big study. So no, no, people taking that not not great estrogen, the conjugated equine estrogen, taking yep. that without progesterone because they didn't have um, uterus. Obviously, with the uterus, you have to take progesterone to protect you. Um, but the people taking just estrogen on its own did not have an increased risk of breast cancer. So right. already, you know, looking into it, and this is now, you know, 2020, that's, you know, two decades after the study initiated. Yeah, that's significant. Um, it shows that it was the progesterone that was being used that um, really gave that extra impact in terms of the breast cancer risk. And then you look today, we don't use CEE. You know, we, no. we use, um, yeah, we use estradiol. And also we don't use those progesterones. The MPA was what was used in the Women's Health Initiative. And we use micronized. That's right. So now we're, we're using a more natural form that the body can identify much more closely. So you talk about in your book the timing of the commencement of HRT, which being critical to long-term health benefits. And this timing issue isn't a new concept. We see it in embryology and we see it for timing of toxins, for example, in children compared to adults. So why is it so critical for HRT and those in menopause and perimenopause. Like, you know, if we're thinking about starting an HRT, is there a timing um, period that we need to consider? I mean, the answer is absolutely yes. So in the Women's Health Initiative, as I said, the mean age of women was 63. However, they did a sub-analysis years later and they looked at those women, a really tiny proportion, I have to say. Uh, mind you, they had 50,000 people, so even a tiny proportion is a good yeah, sample it's size. Yeah, quite significant. Yep. Um, yeah. <laughs> so they looked at women who were under 60. So that was up to 59 years of age. And they analysed them separately for the women who were 60 or over. And they found that the women up to 59 years of age did not have the negative side effects and did have benefits. So that's out there. So, so, you know, segregating the group like that, that's where they said, oh, gosh, it looks like if you do start close to your final menstrual period, you have the benefits without the risks. Fantastic. And as I said at the moment, you know, they they published recently their 20-year data on that. Um, but you see, the trial wasn't designed to look at the time you took hormone therapy. So the first thing is we're saying under 60, but, you know, is that the optimum time? 
or mm. is 45 <laughs> or the first yeah. time you skip a period, the first, you know, the best time. And that's what we really don't know. We're, right. we're working backwards from that massive study. I mean, there's been some amazing papers written and, you know, you know, as specialists, we can discuss this with, you know, your program. Um, when you fund a study like this, it costs tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Right? And so that was funded back in the noughties and many scientific papers and journals and, you know, people have discussed, no one's going to fund that again mm, because all those shame. products are pretty much off patent. <laughs> yes. So, you know, and no of course there was a money. huge reduction in hormone prescriptions. And so, you know, there's a whole ecosystem that surrounds our medications and we have never designed another women's health initiative starting therapy at the time of final menstrual period. There are right. a few smaller studies. So there's a study called Elite that was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. They took us much smaller than the Women's Health Initiative out of necessity, um, took a group of women 45 to 55 around the time of menstrual uh, final menstrual period and put them on hormone replacement therapy, randomized controlled double blind, and what they looked at, because these women are so young, right, so they're not getting diseases yet. Mm, so yeah. five to eight years later, they looked at their um, carotid arteries and how patent they were. And the women who were on hormone replacement therapy had more patent arteries than the women who were not on hormone therapy. So again, a suggestion that it is good for vascular health to be on hormone therapy. However, of course, a lot of people are saying, but will that lead to stroke? Will that lead to heart disease? You know, it's of an course. early stage marker and, you know, we don't have those long-term effects. This is the trouble with chronic disease. They're chronic. They take decades to occur. That's right. Um, and, you know, clinical trials don't go for more than five years. Yes. And prevention too. Like it's so hard to kind of define how progress will occur. So, but that, those kind of microscopic changes or early markers is almost like critical to prevention, but so difficult to extrapolate long-term effects. I think you are spot on there, you know. So um, one reason I actually, I'm the director of the Healthy Aging Project and that's what I've become despite being a neurologist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, my, I love my focus that. and passion for that. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. You know, that's our key. You know, rates of heart disease have been declining for the last three decades. Rates of cancer deaths have been declining for the last three decades. Um, there's one thing on the incline, one disease in Australia that's on the incline, it's dementia. Oh, no. And I think <laughs> one of the things that's also on the incline is poor quality of life in ageing. Mm. So I think what you said is critical. When you're looking at multiple diseases, interactions, and trying to focus on healthy ageing, to do that, you need a preventive yeah. treatment. It has to be holistic. It can't target just one organ because we all know that all the organs, uh, unless, you know, as I say, they're all book, connected. You're an Egyptian mummy. <laughs> Exactly. We don't keep them in separate jars. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Or a, and so or a medical these anatomy. Diseases, and these diseases of ageing, they, they just aren't in one direction. And that's why we really need to look at all of them. And this idea of inflammation, especially for chronic diseases and diseases of ageing, is something also that I think we need to look at. That's right. And I just wanted to hone in on that because one of the questions that I had, and you, you make a point in your book, that the women that had the most severe um, menopausal symptoms, so the most severe hot flushes and the most severe symptoms, tended to have the worst long-term 
outcome in terms of disease. What's the mechanism behind that? Like what, what is thought to be going on uh, for those women that have got severe issues through perimenopause and menopause? So, you know, I want to start a question before that question, which is all women who get older go through menopause. So 50% of the population is going through this. Mm. And yet we know so little about it. Even today, we know so little about it. So sure, people who have, you know, quality of life crushing symptoms who can't function will go and see their doctor. (laughs) Yes. You know, recent studies have shown 80% of people have symptoms that impact their function. Right. 80, so 80% of half our population <laughs> is going <laughs> through this, like cataclysmic, functionally impairing, and yet we know so little about it. And we really haven't scratched the surface of people who definitely have sleep disturbance, definitely have mood disturbance, definitely have cognitive impairment, mm. um, and yet they just keep marching on. That's not something they see their doctors about. That's not something that gets investigated. They just keep marching on. Yeah, it's kind of no, it's so normalised that it's almost it's um, and and I know that there's a lot of work in menopause in the workplace and the impact as well because women are in the workforce more than ever, like more than fifty years ago, um, and so that's impacting the workforce as well, which is um, which is another side issue. But one of these questions I wanted to to take on board is, for example, during that time where the WHI, the um, the study came out. And there was often so much confusion, you know, as being a practitioner of whether I start, whether I stop. And I remember seeing, you know, quite a lot of very healthy women, you know, presenting to me, say, at the age of 68 or 72, still on hormones, still very well, looking after themselves nutritionally, physically, mentally, and doing all the screening of the breast screening, et cetera. Do I need to stop her HRT at a certain age as well? Like in terms of timing, like there's a time that we start, but is there a time that we stop? So the first thing to say is there's never going to be one answer that suits every person out there. Mm. So there's no one answer that at this age, every woman should do something. That's never going to, if you hear that, question it. (laughs) Yes. Um, Because we're all different. We're all individuals and we all have a different risk profile. So the first thing to say is, you know, it's something to do in close collaboration with your clinicians because they know your medical history. The second thing to say is that a stop date is not something that has been proven at all. And there's a lot of people out there who are having things stopped and then you wouldn't believe it. They actually get the symptoms in their 70s. You can get you yeah. can get those symptoms. And I noticed in your book you had a few stories of women's, you know, saying like, um, you know, I, I would prefer, <laughs> you know, I would prefer to die earlier than have these symptoms, you know, within my, um, <laughs> you know, I'm paraphrasing really, but essentially that's what they were saying. Like the symptoms were so severe and so debilitating that really risking a disease of any sort was worth considering. And the second thing is, as women get into those older age groups, even in the Women's Health Initiative study, they showed in the older age groups, the risk wasn't as great. Mm, that's interesting too. So there's almost like a window of, of risk. <laughs> and then... And then the third thing is, which is against staying on hormone therapy, is that the risk from duration of use five years to duration of use 10 years was increased. 
And so that's why when people have been on it a long time, there's a feeling from clinicians to cease the therapy because of that. No, but nobody's investigated over 10 years, you see. So, right. So, uh, you know, it's kind of an evidence-free zone. Right. Okay. That was from the women's, the five-year, 10-year is from the Women's Health Initiative. And again, right. it was the different preparation of estrogen. It was, you know, so it's so difficult because we're trying to extrapolate conjugated equine estrogen at high doses with MPA as the progesterone. And we're trying to extrapolate that knowledge that into a data, different population yeah. using different hormone therapy entirely. And I should say on that note um, that, you know, transdermal estrogens, so be they gels or patches, so far they haven't had the side effect at all of the oral therapy. Really? Yes, totally. So they they look like they have a completely different side effect profile. But of course, we know less about them than on Mm. things we've been using for a very long time. And finally, I'm I'm not an endocrinologist. (laughs) Don't ask a neurologist (laughs) about hormones. Yeah, just caveat there. Um, And look, there's one other thing I want to say. You know, and we're talking about symptoms. And you know, I I know too much about women's health to let a discussion on symptoms go by without highlighting that um, women used to be diagnosed with hysteria for reporting symptoms. And to this day, women having heart attacks are sent home um, with the feeling that it's all just in their heads. So there is an issue around symptoms in women. And I wanted to make the point that menopausal symptoms are not just an inconvenience. Mm. So hot flushes, everyone knows about those, hot flushes, hot flushes, whatever you call them. These are symptoms that people think are just an inconvenience. There is very hard, solid evidence now to show that women who experience hot flushes are more likely to have heart disease. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in women in America, and it's the second leading cause of death in women in Australia. Women um, have more heart disease than men do. So this is not trivial. This is not trivial. This is not trivial, no. And, I mean, it's just information that isn't out there in the community. I wanted to to talk about mood as well because things such as anxiety and depression are really common around menopause and perimenopause and even just what you said then about that, that previous diagnosis of hysteria or almost repressing, you know, our emotional response to such debilitating symptoms and not actually having them heard or, you know, being at risk of of being belittled because of them. Is there any research in regards to hormone replacement therapy and its role in mood? Or do you think that the mood is is part and parcel of the challenges that women face at this particular time? What do you think, you know, is there any... You're absolutely spot on there. It's a very, very difficult time for a whole sort of reason. So Mm. if you're experiencing, you know, all of you are going through menopause, 80% of you are experiencing symptoms that impact your function. Um, If you're not going to be perturbed by that, then maybe there's something (laughs) else wrong with you. (laughs) Um, That's one way of looking at it. (laughs) So it's very hard um, in a human body. And I think this is why we've really struggled. So the last you know, before the COVID pandemic hit and completely halted all of us in our tracks, mm. WHO had actually said chronic diseases of ageing are our next big challenge. Yeah. These are the diseases that's killing everyone, causing poor quality of life as we age. And yet WHO said 80% are preventable. Yeah, so, you know, absolutely. this is the last frontier um, of our capacity to um, have health And we've done great at extending life, but we haven't taken care (laughs) about the grumbling along chronic diseases that are giving us a a less healthy ageing. 
Yeah, and you make the point strongly that that the health of ageing starts in middle age. You know, and I know some of my colleagues will actually say it starts in childhood or it starts, starts even before you're born. But, you know, at least at middle age, we've got the agency, you know, to do something about it. We've got, we're in total kind of control, really, of our health choices at that I particular time of life. That's the point. Mm. So, you, you know, you're right. So our um, healthy ageing program, our motto is, you know, from birth to beyond, because often when you're running a healthy ageing program, everyone says, oh, I'm too young for that. Um, but, you know, in fact, ageing does start from birth. And yes, it does start in utero as well. Yes. Um, however, in terms of your risk factor profiles, uh, if you take away childhood obesity, which is now making the the risk factor, factor profiles into teenage years, um, but, you know, prior to childhood obesity becoming uh, an issue in our societies, in fact, the major risk factors that were hitting us was, you know, in our 30s to 50s. That's and amazing. so that's why the midlife target is, is so important. But, you know, with our change in lifestyles, as I said, childhood obesity, that's going to become a huge risk factor. For, yeah. for later life disease and, you know, frankly, early ageing, the diseases you would normally associate with people in their 70s and 80s will start occurring in 50s and 60s in, in people who have higher risk factors. So with the women, you know, going back to, you know, really 30 years ago, how we used to, because because we thought we had the research to suggest a better risk profile in women starting HRT using the equine oestrogen and the the other form of progesterone, in women that don't suffer much or women that are, you know, they've got mild symptoms and it's not as debilitating, should we be considering HRT as an option for prevention in these women? And all those with a risk factor such as like a strong family history of, of heart disease or strong family history of dementia, have we got enough research to help sway my decision one way or the other? So as a researcher, I'd say we don't have the research. And that question you just asked is my most favorite question. I actually think here's the one thing we did wrong with the whole hormone thing was just give half the women hormone therapy and half a placebo. We never said who's got symptoms, who hasn't, what symptoms do you have, what type of hormone therapy do you need? So symptoms of menopause can be dry vagina. Given the topical estrogens have absolutely no side effects so far, why not give a topical to that person? Yeah. <laughs> and the person, you know, so we're really not tailoring therapies, not tailoring therapies. And that when you don't tailor therapies, we know you give it to people who don't need it. And then they're just dealing with risk factor profiles and you give it to people um, at the wrong dose who maybe need a different dose. So mm. I think tailoring therapy is crucial. And I think symptoms, now that we know that hot flushes actually um, predate heart disease, I really think we have to be looking at symptoms and treating symptoms. Mm. And that's the most important thing. So in terms of hormone therapy, you know, the, the national position statements, the international position statements all say you should only use it if the person has symptoms and that you should, of course, be balancing that individual's risk. So if someone has had breast cancer, they're not going to be given hormone therapy. And is that true in the case of like a vaginal preparation as well? Or is there a, a so way the in which... So topical preparations actually can be used. But again, and people with breast cancer can actually use estrogens, uh, topical, and also sometimes even oral, but it's done in close um, discussion with all of their treating practitioners and, of course, with vigilance and monitoring. I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the evidence, though, on HRT and bone health is strong. 
I mean, even in the WHI study, we we found that even using those older preparations and starting later, there was an impact on bone health. An impact? I mean, it's so good for bones, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you basically have 30-year-old bones if you, you have hormones. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is very, very good for bones. Mm. And I think with anything, as we've seen, you know, those high doses, getting the dose right, getting the timing right, getting the therapy tailored for the person is going to reduce side effects. Yeah, that's fantastic. And still have the benefits. And I think that's where we're at. So what was the difference in dosage back in the back in the study 30 years ago? What what sort of doses were they using then and what sort of doses are they using now? Well, it's also the preparation. So when you have an estradiol, you can use less because all of it is actually going to receptors and acting. Whereas with the conjugated equine estrogens, there was a whole mix of estrogens in there that you weren't even necessarily benefiting from, but you couldn't work out which ones to get, if, if you know what right. I mean. So the science Well, then they there. would have been acting as xenoestrogens and then creating issues for, uh, for the gut biome and for the liver detoxification capacity and all of those different other aspects. Totally. Yeah. And look, the yeah. other thing we should say is, um, and, you know, I hate to medicalise menopause when it is a natural process that all women go through. So there's always this debate um, because we, we don't want to medical over-medicalise anything that we can help unmedicalising. Unmedicalising yeah. is a great thing to do. <laughs> um, That's right. But I think we have to remember, you know, in the 1900s, the mean age of death was 50. Yeah. So I've got the mean age left. of menopause is 50. <laughs> so there were no menopausal women. Mm, before the 1900s. Really interesting, yeah. Yeah, so so this idea of, yeah, so it was very rare to have a menopausal woman um, before the 1900s and then since the 1900s, you know, we've all seen those um, demographics of the ageing population. So, the, you know, there was a small ageing population, whereas now women are living a third of their lives in the post-menopause. So it's an entirely different situation. Yeah, absolutely. And let alone running big companies and corporations and <laughs> doing all the other sorts of things that amazing women do. Um, I wanted to, one of, the, one of the things that I see a lot in practice is libido, um, having a low libido, particularly around the time of perimenopause and menopause, et cetera. And I guess in my clinical experience, HRT has been a bit hit and miss in terms of that. You talk about libido in the book quite a bit. Tell us about libido and, and HRT and, and also its role in longevity. So what I would say about libido and HRT is an endocrinologist is the best person to discuss that. And testosterone, you know, when we talk about HRT, we're really talking about estrogen progesterone. The yep. testosterone has, you know, a larger impact on libido. But an endocrinologist is the best to discuss that. But the thing with libido is it's not just hormones. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's those, those uh, little cartoons and so on about a woman's libidos in her brain. And, of course, everyone's libidos in their brain. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the factors surrounding all of the other symptoms is what's really important in terms of libido. And what we found in our study was the single most important thing was how you felt about your partner. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what, what your hormone levels are, what your diseases are. Maybe you've got such bad osteoarthritis, you really struggle even mobilising um, for activity. doesn't matter. If you have a good relationship with your partner, you have a great sex life. Yeah, menopause or not. 
So that's so good focus news. focus on relationships. <laughs> that'll, that'll be another podcast. So how is the brain impacted by these decreasing hormone levels in perimenopause? Like what's the mechanism that we know about the role of estrogen, progesterone, testosterone going across the blood-brain barrier? Is it about that in general or has it got to do with blood flow? What's the mechanism behind the brain impacts in the perimenopausal menopause time period? So, you know, here's an area of cutting-edge research. So, you know, the studies that I read from journals hot off the press have 30, 40 women who've had brain scans who have hormone measures. That's where we're at. Mm. What we want to see is 10, 20, 30-year studies with scans and hormone information, which we just don't have yet to answer those questions. But the little studies we have to date definitely show us, as you say, we know hormones cross and not everything crosses. So if you cross, you're a winner. (laughs) And not only do hormones cross, but there's so many receptors within the brain for those hormones. So they're not just crossing and doing nothing. They have activity sites in the brain. Mm. And we also know that people's cognitive testing gets better when they have estrogen. Um, Even looking cyclically, there have been changes noted in functional MRI, cognitive testing and um, hormone levels. So there's a lot of, but it's such early stage work such early stage work. And that is, of course, what led to the hypothesis um, that hormone therapy would be good for cognition. You may be aware that in the Women's Health Initiative, they had a sub-study. It was called the Women's Health Cognitive Initiative or something like that. Sorry, I've forgotten. (laughs) But in their cognitive sub-study, you don't remember the mean age of women was 63. The mean age of the women who got into the cognitive sub-study was 70. Right. So here's women who were 70. How many decades is that after your last menstrual period? Yeah, they wouldn't and, remember it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and in fact, reintroduction of estrogen in those women, they had more dementia. Yes, I, not, I read not that. Not horrifically more, but, you know, more dementia than people who didn't. But that's giving estrogen to estrogen-free women yeah. at 70 years of age, right? However, there's a lot of work looking at giving estrogen in a maintenance setting, so not having washed it out and reintroducing it, but maintaining estrogen and cognitive performance. And, you know, the the early studies do show better blood flow. They show, um, and we know that blood flow to the brain, I mean, that's crucial for cognition. In the old days, we used to say there's Alzheimer's dementia, then there's vascular dementia. And, you know, I wrote a textbook um, chapter on vascular cognitive disorder God, it must be 15 years ago now, where we said it's mixed dementia. Like there's no, you know, yeah, everyone with it's not one or the other. Has, yes, yes, there's, everyone's got vascular change now that we're living to 80, 90. They have vascular change as well. And we know now for sure that the vascular changes are also exacerbating that download of amyloid, which is characteristic mm. of Alzheimer's dementia. So, you know, there's no diseases interact, body systems interact. And as you get older, the system's a lot more fragile. Yeah, And so these impacts, you know, exacerbate each other. And then in addition to that, because they're causing this perturbation of your normal functioning and less blood supply, the cells become distressed. They send out Mm. signals, oh, hello, inflammatory cascade. So there's a whole inflammatory cascade hypothesis around dementia as well. Yeah, And it's probably not one or the other. (laughs) It's not the amyloid people or the inflammatory people or the vascular people. Probably all three are operating to give us what we see. 
That's such a great way of looking at it too because it gives us that holistic picture. It's not just one thing to focus on. It gives us a, a breadth to understand, I guess, and empower ourselves to all of the different factors that we understand to protect us against cardiovascular disease, which is really, we know quite a bit about that in terms of lifestyle medicine. Because uh, one of the, the big issues, I think, with HRT is its role in breast health. And with, you know, breast cancer now rates at sort of one in eight, one in 10 women in Australia, it's certainly a disease that has been on the rise, although there has been some incredible, incredible movements in terms of um, treating that disease for really positive outcomes. What's the role of HRT for breast health? And you know, what is, what is that mechanism? And we just spoke about perhaps using topical estrogens or as an option for women that have got menopause and really severe um, symptoms. But just on the risk factor of breast, breast health, breast cancer, what do we need to know? So look, I think this topic, you know, there's no paper out there that will give you a clear answer. On that, so what I I'm want a clear is, answer, Cassandra. I know you do. No, don't worry. I'll give you one. Um, not being either an oncologist or an endocrinologist, who are the two specialists who really know this field. Why don't I give you my answer? But yeah. um, what I mean to say is, people are still debating and arguing about this. So even the oncologists and endocrinologists haven't come to a really clear agreement around this. So I'll just give you data because I'm a researcher. So in that right. Women's Health Initiative, I told you there was more breast cancers in the group of people who had that high dose conjugated estrogen with progesterone and not in those who just took the estrogen. There wasn't a difference in mortality. Mm. And then the second thing to say is that um, when these big studies came out looking at and remember, it's all older preparations, but by necessity, because they were looking at the 10 and 20 year risk of taking hormone therapy. So there were big studies in the Lancet and the British Medical Journal, which said, this is how many more cancers we have because of hormone therapy, which were very scary studies yeah. for people to read. And when they came out, there were a lot of people who said, okay, well, let's look at this because it turned out that the risk was mitigated by adiposity. That means your body mass index. And when ah. you actually break down the numbers of relative risk, being overweight is more likely to get your breast cancer than taking hormone therapy. So then this became a big topic of discussion. And then people were very upset because, you know, it doesn't, we shouldn't be comparing what gives you more of a risk of cancer. If anything yeah. gives you a risk of cancer, you probably want to avoid it. So, so the, it's such a fraught area. Um, it, it's really something for a panel to debate. And of course, there's national position statements. And so I've told you those, which is that um, symptoms should be treated and that um, people should be monitored and risk profiles need to be assessed on an individual basis. That's just such a, a great way to look at it because really, I mean, clinical medicine, when we've got a patient in front of us, that's all we've got is one patient in front of us. And then we use the research to inform our decision rather than be rigid and structured in our decision-making, you know, to, to actually keep the, the patient's life, the patient's decision-making, the patient's, all of the different genetics in line with our decisions as clinicians. But not all women want to take hormone replacement therapy for a whole variety of different reasons. It could be a cultural belief. It could be, you know, um, a naturalistic principle or whatever other reasons. What what can practitioners help women in that time of their life to support these women? 
What are, what are the other things that we can suggest that your study has shown us that help women long-term? Well, I think the other thing about this time of life is it's not all hormones. Like we've been talking a lot about hormones, but it's yeah. not all hormones. <laughs> I did this that on time purpose. of life, well, a lot is going on. So a lot is changing in terms of um, households and relationships and disease. So I said uh, before that over the age of 50, people either have no disease or two diseases. So Mm. 50 is a number in the Bureau of Statistics that is used because once people are over 50, they're more likely to get diseases. So in fact, obviously I'm a neurologist, so I'm going to talk about dementia, but the risk of you having dementia doubles every five years after 50 years of age. So that's why um, when menopause is around that time as well, (laughs) there's also disease starting to enter people's lives. So really what's important is looking at all the other aspects. Now, I will say a lot of people talked about uh, empty nest syndrome, yeah, when women are going through menopause and there was this whole concept of empty nest and women are getting depressed and all these things because of the empty nest. Well, the original study principal investigator, Professor Lorraine Denistein, (laughs) threw that entire concept to the wind when she examined this cohort and found that was not the case at all. So with the emptiness, with the leaving of children from the household, women's mood improved, their sex lives improved. <laughs> I I just that. everything was on the up. <laughs> and um, when they and came back, their sex life. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that really. And, yeah. when, when, and interesting, when children came back, the sex life took a hit. Anyway. That's right. Um, <laughs> the revolving door syndrome. But um, That's right. the, the thing is sometimes we do have these suggestions in our minds that things are going to be impacting people when they don't. You know, so it's about really looking at people's symptoms, looking what's going on and supporting them. And of course, we all know that talking about the leading causes of death. So, you know, in women, the number one cause of death is dementia. Mm. The second leading cause of death in women is heart disease in our country. And the third leading cause of death in our country is what they call cerebrovascular disease or stroke. That is the blood vessels going to your brain, getting clotted. Yeah, so, and you know, all, they all come from the same. Brain yeah, are taking right. out. They're the top three causes of death. So yeah. you know, I don't think women really, because women's health tends to focus on other things. I think women don't realise what's actually causing them to have low quality of life and disability when they're older and killing them. Mm. So you also talk a lot about, you know, that you've got some five top tips around what women should be doing and starting in that middle age time, so any time from 40, 45, 50 onwards, what are those top tips just to, to, to leave us with that? Absolutely. So look, the number one thing to do is move. <laughs> so activity is just so important. And, you know, we we're talking before about, you know, hormone therapy and heart risk and dementia risk and all of this. Oh my goodness, just move. Yeah. Physical activity actually reduces dementia risk. It reduces heart disease risk. Mm. It's good for your bones. So movement is actually fantastic for you and prevents a lot of those. Remember when I said the World Health Organization said 80% of these chronic diseases of aging are preventable? Mm. They actually had another statement to that, preventable with lifestyle and exercise. Yes, absolutely. Exercise is a panacea. (laughs) I can say that exercise is a panacea. (laughs) 
Well, the thing is, people don't realize activity is not just about breathing hard. So in our study, we actually thought it was going to be this cardiovascular activity that makes you breathe hard, hard, intense activity that's going to have the best impact. Because when you look at short-term studies, 12 weeks, two years, um, people who do these studies, their blood cholesterol drops better, their blood pressure drops more, you know, all of those kind of parameters get better, which we know are associated with heart disease risk. However, when we looked across 30 years in normal people out there just living their lives, it was activity 30 minutes to an hour a day, every Mm. single day. Those were the women who did the best. Even if that was not going to the gym, it was just mm. going for a walk around the block with your friend for 40 minutes every day. Yeah. Mm. Those people were kicking goals. That's so inspiring. it's activity that's the most important. Not to undermine intense activity and how it can help reduce your cholesterols and your blood sugars, but doing something each and every day for seven years is what helps you 30 years later. Yeah, doing it's sustainability. Had, yeah, yeah it's, it's maintenance. And, you know, intense activity isn't often maintained or really intense activity, as we know from our wonderful athletes, can actually wear down your bones. Mm. So keep moving is the, is the number one tip. What's, what's number two? Don't poison yourself. <laughs> and I, that sounds so silly. <laughs> what a great that idea. So silly. But, but it truly is that uh, there's so many diets and everything, oh, I've got to be on this diet, I've got to be on that diet. We did this great radar chart that they just would not let me put in the book because it was a radar chart. And, you know, who puts radar charts in books for people. Um, but I did, I did do my best to, to explain the radar chart in the book. What we did was, you know, in my field, we're all into Mediterranean diet, DASH diet. There's all these different diets that are meant to have yeah. better healthy aging outcomes, better cognitive outcomes, better heart outcomes. And so we did this radar chart and looked at what our women were eating and look at the overlap between the Mediterranean diet, the DASH diet, the high-fat diet, the Western diet, the junk food diet, all these different diets. And we did a radar chart which showed what people in these diets are eating. And in fact, you wouldn't believe it. They're predominantly eating the same stuff. Yeah. So 80% of what they're eating is the same. And what we did was we picked out the pings where on the radar chart only, so only the Mediterranean DASH people were eating fresh fruit. Um, and leafy veg, yeah, ten times more than people in other diets. You got to eat your the leafy other thing. Yep, leafy leafy um, greens and and fruit and veg. The other ping was on nuts and legumes. Yeah. So that's beans and nuts was another ping for the good diet. And the bad diet, the ping was on processed foods, mm. fried foods, yep, and sugar. And, of course, the ping was on cake. There was a ping on cake, ping on confectionery, ping on, you know, but ultimately added sugar and processed foods, which is added sugar and salt and fat often. Processed foods often also have fat. Um, so avoiding processed foods, added sugars and eating those leafy greens. And that that's the secret. There was a couple of others to finish our top five. We had meaning and purpose. Oh, well, this is so important for healthy aging. And, you know, it goes to 
I guess, old adages as, as to what good quality of life is. And, you know, meaning and purpose, sometimes people think you have to be Gandhi, but it, it's not about that. It can be a really <laughs> small meaning and purpose. So people who are connected to their community, even though they didn't feel connected to their community, and I, I give an example of, um, because often people think you have to be an extrovert connected to community, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that at all. There's an introvert in the study who was dragged, because she had accounting skills, she was dragged out to help a club with their books. And she didn't attend the social functions because that's not her cup of tea. You know, but she was helping this organisation and that was her purpose. And, you know, you can really see every time you have to look for it, but the people who are doing well, they do have a purpose. What I wanted to to finish up with is that I think from my perspective and I think a lot of practitioners out there, there still is a lot of fear around HRT and women are still fearful of HRT. I just want to finish with saying, is this warranted? I think we should be scared of, of, of all medications, right? That's just why we, well, no, that's why we prescribe them with such care yeah. um, because we know that all medications have side effects and we also know that most of the trials, of, not HRT, but most of the trials of medications were done in male animals. So mm. it was only in 2016 that the NIH mandated that female animals need to be tested in drug trials as well as male animals. So we've really so only got up five years. 2015, <laughs> wow, every 16. drug that went into a phase three clinical trial, I mean, there, there would have been women in the clinical trials because that was mandated in 1995, I think. Um, but that, that medication came from only male animals. So, you know, we know that these haven't been tested often even in women and they certainly haven't been tested in us. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you know, each person is an individual with their own constellation of um, physiology and risk. And so all doctors prescribe, uh, all clinicians prescribe with that in mind and we prescribe carefully. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Cassandra, for your time today. Like the, yeah, just the way that chatting. you position, position everything has just helped to clear up so many of the positive benefits that can come perhaps with the discussion of hormone replacement therapy and the risks. And I feel like really, you know, we're on the pathway to to seeing whether we've got more options available through that time for women with perimenopause and menopause. And your work has just been so profound. I've absolutely loved the book. It really has helped kind of frame things in such a fantastic way from a clinician's point of view, but also from a personal point of view. And it was a, it was a real honour to speak with you today. No, it's been a pleasure. It's easy to write when I've got 400 women behind me giving me all the secrets. <laughs> so Cassandra's book is A Secret of Women's Healthy Ageing and the byline is Living Better, Living Longer. Where do we get that book from, Cassandra? Oh, everywhere. Melbourne yeah. University Publishing, of course, and it's on Amazon and Topia and Book Depositories. Thanks everyone for listening today and don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and all of the resources and research from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse and thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice diagnosis or treatment.